Well, we've got to thank the team for leading us in that song. Uh, it really introduces what we're here for. I think it's really fitting as we enter the Christmas season that we handle what Christ really came for. Uh, he had great teachings. He had great things that he taught us as he lived and he taught the disciples. But he came for one reason, and that was to die and to redeem mankind through his death. So today we have quite a huge undertaking. Uh, we have to get through all of chapter 15 of Mark. And chapter 15 has uh, 47 verses, so I've got about 45 seconds of verse. So we're going to be moving along very quickly. Um, but we're not going to handle everything that is in here because it's just impossible. I think it gets to be a little bit too detailed to do in one sermon. So we will go through some specific things. Um, this is day. Mark 15 encompasses one day. Um, it's the day we, we sometimes refer to as the day the earth stood still. It's a day where we have uh, three parts, and Mark specifically spits, splits it up into three parts. He handles Jesus' trial in front of Pontius Pilate, you remember two weeks ago, Tim talked about the trial in front of the tribunal uh, in the Sanhedrin. But here we will handle just the trial in front of Pontius Pilate, handle the crucifixion and death, and his burial. This all takes place within only a matter of hours, really. And so we have a lot to cover today of those things. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word. Father, I pray that today... You are in this place, that you move us to hear your word, that we can see in your scriptures the truth, that you came and you died. But in that death, you conquered sin. And we know what's coming, we know the resurrection, but there is importance on this day. Let us not skip past and look forward, but let us look in detail at what you accomplished on the darkest day in history. Amen. So let's dive right in. I think it's important to, to be reading through the scripture as we explore it. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit fast today so that we can get into some of the details. Let's start right here at uh, verse 1 though. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, there is a little bit difference between the Jewish council and the way that they could meet judgment so the council met and determined to do this, and they already had determined it, but now they, they met it out their judgment. Their judgment was essentially to say, we're going to give him over to the Roman officials. So they pass him off to Pontius Pilate. And we've got to look at Pontius Pilate a little bit. Um, he is a Roman official. He's a, he would be the prefect of this area, basically the governor, uh, and 
he disliked the Jews. He really disliked the Jewish people. He disliked the Jewish leaders. And we get that from Josephus. If, if you don't know who Josephus was, he was a Jewish historian, and he wrote a lot of histories about the Jewish people under Roman oppression. And he talked a lot about Pontius Pilate, and he said he did not like the Jewish people. Uh, he probably, actually, when we read through this story, we, we are going to see he, he really tries to release Jew- He really tries to release Jesus. And that's probably actually to kind of spit in the face of the temple leaders. Not necessarily because he believes Jesus or really cares about what happens to him, but because he dislikes the leaders and they want Jesus put to death. So he's probably going to say, look, if I can get this guy released. That's another thing I can throw at you because, and show you that I really am the boss. And it's my word. He's very pragmatic. He looks at situations very by the book. So he wouldn't have uh, gone out of his way to do anything else. Um, And it was interesting because after Jesus' day, he was actually removed from office because of complaints that Jewish people sent to Rome about him. Uh, There's a book that was written, a Christian book called Acts of Pilate, um, where he is depicted that after Christ... He, he actually became a follower of a Christ, and he is, because of that, a saint in the Coptic church. Now, none of that is scriptur- scriptural. None of it is scripture-based, so we don't know if that's true, but at the time when this trial happened, it clearly was not. He was very much a harsh man and had no problem putting Jesus to death. Uh, and we're going to see how this is. Let's compare actually these two trials. Um, the trial with the Sanhedrin and the trial with Pontius Pilate. Because they're very important to look at. And my slide is apparently uh, going to show up only on the front screen. So, first we have... Oh, it might not show up at all. Well, if we look at... Chapter 14, verses 60 to 62. We can see this. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. It's exactly what happens with Pilate in verse 2 of chapter 15. Pilate asked him. And the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And that's in uh, verse 61. Pilate says, Are you the King of the Jews? So they look at these, and they're asking the same question. Now, it's interesting because Jesus responds differently. When asked by the council, Jesus says this. says, I am. But when asked by Pilate, he says, you have said so. And he puts these two in contrast because they are looking at this, and I think it's important that Pilate then doesn't have anything to level against him. That one actually comes up. So, these are the questions that are asked. So then, we see this kind of conundrum that Jesus answers differently based off of what audience he's talking to. He tells the Jewish people exactly who he is, but he doesn't tell Pilate. He lets it said 
and doesn't directly tell him. And this gives Pilate pause. Because when we look at this, there is a historical understanding that Jesus is the Christ, but that, in the Roman officials' eyes, is all about the church. And what the council is accusing Jesus of is blaspheming against God. But Pilate wouldn't care. He can let that go. That's not what he is about. He's not going to put someone to death for that. He'll only put them to death if they are attacking the empire. So when he asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking him to say, yes, I am. And then he can say, politically, you're against Rome and I can put you to death. But because of Jesus' answer, Pilate has to go and ask more questions. So Pilate goes and he asks this, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And that's the same question the priests have in chapter 14, verse 60, when they say, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And in both cases, Jesus remains completely silent. He doesn't answer. He doesn't bow down to what the world wants. And it would be very interesting here, I think, Pilate was amazed, and he was probably amazed because Jesus is here, basically in front of the man who can set him free, and he offers no defense. Doesn't say that's not true, and everybody would have. Even criminals who were guilty would have tried to say that they were not, because it comes down to what Pilate believes. And it's interesting also when you look at these two bodies, the way that the whole trial is handled. With the Sanhedrin, the trial is in front of the entire Sanhedrin. They have to come to a consensus. But in Roman government, you're just in front of a magistrate, and they're the one person who determines life or death. So all Jesus had to do was convince Pilate that he was innocent, and Pilate could set him free. And Jesus chooses not to speak up. So let's pick up the story then in verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in this insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief, chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out against, again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We often look at this and we, we see Barabbas as kind of the, the one who really should be put to death. He was a murderer. He rose up against the Roman government, caused an insurrection. And it's very interesting that he would be released by Rome because he actually did do these things that the crowd is saying that Jesus did. He did actually lead a resurrection. The chief priests are lumping essentially the same accusation on Jesus, but Jesus didn't do that. But here's Barabbas who killed somebody Led an insurrection, and yet, he is the one who will go free. 
Now, as we look at this, we have to also think this was actually not a common practice to release someone. Historically, there's no evidence that it happened frequently. However, it was in the right of the person, and obviously, Pilate had done this for them before. But usually, it was somebody who was on trial, and instead of going through the whole trial, they would just acquit them and never go through all of the evidence. So, in this case, Jesus actually perfectly fits, historically, what the prefect would have released. Someone who has yet not had a condemnation handed down, there's no sentence, He's the perfect candidate to be released. Barabbas, on the other hand, has been completely accused. He is already sentenced to death. He is the exact opposite. In fact, he is so much on the other side of things that it's very odd for him to be released. But Pilate takes these two men and basically says, here's someone who is accused, who has absolutely done everything he's accused of, and here's someone who is innocent. Who do you want released? Because see, Pilate in his questioning has definitely found out that Jesus is innocent. And you can tell because he says he has found no guilt in him. What evil has he done is the question he asks. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent and he gives them the option. And then to appease the crowd, he does what they ask. Now some historians will look at this and say clearly, This is not true because Pilate had probably 600 men with him. There's no way he would bow down to the crowd. But we have to remember, this is Pilate who probably is on the edge of being killed himself because of the insurrection that Barabbas caused. Because Rome did not take kindly to the governors who let their areas rise up. So he was fearful that this crowd would do the same thing and he would be killed. So figuring out what the crowd wants, it's better to release this one man that may someday cause a riot than let the crowd cause a riot right now. And Pilate is releasing him and condemning Jesus, who he knows is innocent. Some people look at this and they see the accounts and, and Pilate seems like a pretty good guy. He, he wants to release Jesus. Well, he has just shown that he knows Jesus is innocent and yet puts him to death. Pretty sure that's not the sign of a nice guy. Pretty sure that Pilate, who knows he's innocent, is okay with this. So Jesus is then taken away. In verse 16, we see this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Jesus has already been scourged. They called together the entire battalion, so all of the Roman soldiers that came with Pilate for the feast to protect him, which would be probably about 600 men, came and mocked Jesus. We often look at the crowd calling out, crucify him, and we say that we identify with them. 
But I think in some ways, those of us who are not Jewish identify even more with the Roman soldiers. And this would have been, for Mark's audience, one of the hardest passages. Because those that were Gentiles would identify with these soldiers who spit on the Lord. Who mocked him. Who flayed the skin off of him. And who put him to death. Where the Jewish crowd called out to crucify him. And there there may have even been Gentiles in that crowd. But they vocally said it. These soldiers physically did it. And they came together. And when we look at this, we see imagery that is very interesting. Because here is Christ being bowed down to with a crown robed in the royal color. This is the future. Every knee shall bow and every tongue declare who he is. The Roman guards are doing it mocking, but it is a foretaste of what is to come. And then he goes away and he goes up to the hill. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. I think this passage is one of those that shows how hard Jesus was broken physically. Because people who were condemned had to carry their own cross. They weren't allowed to have anybody else. Soldiers wouldn't help them. They were forced and had to carry it. And the fact that they allowed, that the soldiers pulled in someone else to carry the cross shows how broken he was physically. And I think this, this passage has some powerful meaning for us. Where there are times where we have to pick up the cross and carry it. And this it's because Christ was physically unable to. There are times where he's going to call us and have us do it. Um, Mother Teresa said this, Christ has no hands but yours, no feet but yours. We may be on our way somewhere. This, This man was in from the country with his sons and he was coming and he was called to carry the cross. And I think Mark makes very, makes the notice of who these sons were because they were alive. These were men who were boys when this happened who probably witnessed their father carrying the cross. They were people that Mark's audience could go to, could ask what this was like. And I think it's powerful and fitting that we always are ready at a moment's notice to carry the cross, no matter where it leads. In this case, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
I think when we look at this, we see Mark puts a great emphasis on the mocking. He's mocked by the soldiers. He's mocked by the people passing by. He's mocked by the chief priests. He's mocked by even the robbers who are dying with him. We read this. This is from Psalm 22. He was pressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Oh, this is from Isaiah, sorry. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And again, we see this in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we often see the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what David starts with. But in verses 7 and 8, he writes this. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And going on in this, we see the, this. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud, loud cry, And breathed his last. This right here is the only moment in time when Jesus was alone. Fully alone, apart from God. Before this, he never was apart from God. But here we see the the crying out on the cross. And people have said he's crying out just to fulfill what David wrote. I think there's something even more powerful here. Jesus is alone separated from God for this moment. In this moment, he is crying out in agony because of that separation. This is what is written in Malachi. Because they're going to say, he's crying out for Elijah. This is what Malachi writes. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. See, the people were looking for this sign. They were looking for Elijah. They called it out, and they said, You know, he's calling out for Elijah, and Elijah is always seen as the forerunner. He's the one who will come first. He will come first before the second coming of Christ. That's what this crowd has always been looking for. They've always been looking for Christ coming as the king, the military king to kick out the Roman oppression and take over. But that is not why he came this time. 
I think they should be very fearful if this was him crying for Elijah to come because of the way that it is. The way that he's proclaiming what is to come. And see here we look at this and we see throughout Mark this imagery. It's handled first at Jesus' baptism. Because see in Jesus' baptism we see the heavens rent and a dove descends. See a voice from heaven. And that voice says, you are my beloved son. And in this case, the people see John the Baptist as Elijah. We see this imagery again at the transfiguration. See, at the transfiguration, we have a cloud. His garments turn white. Jesus' garments turn white and a cloud descends. And the voice from the cloud says, this is my son, the beloved. And in this case, Elijah is actually there. Jesus appears with Elijah. And here, at his crucifixion, we have the sanctuary of El Rent, darkness spreading, and Jesus' voice calling out. And then the centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And their question is, is he calling Elijah? This is what they've been looking for, this sign. The sign that Malachi prophesied about. But none of these are the sign, because it hasn't happened yet. After Jesus dies, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, When the centurion who faced him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, and with them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Centurion sees who he is. The inscription that Pilate had put on top of his cross was King of the Jews. And at that point, it was a mocking thing because that is what the people declared. And I think it would have galled the priests some to see that up there. They wanted it as a way to get rid of him. But here, Pilate declares who he is. When he dies, the centurion declares who he is. And then the curtain is torn. And much like God abandoned Jesus and left him to die. And that was part of his grand plan. This wasn't something that God was like, I have nothing I can do. It was part of the plan to leave him on the cross. He then tears the temple in two. And when he tears that curtain, that is the sign that God is leaving the temple. Because Jesus has made a way that is no longer through the temple to connect with God. God's place to dwell is no longer in that temple behind that curtain where only the chief priest could go once a year. But he was now where everybody could talk to him. Because here hung the king of the Jews. The centurion declares it. Pilate declares it with what he wrote on the cross. 
And as we look at the people who look on here, we have the women. In fact, these women were Jesus' disciples. We know that. And I think the fact that Mark points this out in such a patriarchal society, that they were the witnesses to the cross, that they have names, that their names were so important, these women weren't minor disciples. These were women that were known. They were the ones that were on par with the apostles. Everybody would have known their names. These women did not flee. The women did not flee like the rest of the disciples. The only disciple we know that was at the cross was John. He was there with Mary, Jesus' mother. But here we have a count from Mark that there were many of Jesus' disciples who were women standing, watching. And because of this, they are the ones who see where Jesus is laid. So Jesus then is buried. This is how it happened. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Joseph of Arimathea is an interesting guy. He was part of the Sanhedrin. We see in Luke's gospel that he did not agree with their ruling against Jesus. And we see in John's gospel that he was a disciple, but in hiding for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of what would happen if they found out that he was a true follower of Jesus. Here we just see he was looking for the kingdom of God, and he, like so many others, like the disciples, is looking for that second coming. And they now know that that is not the here and now. But he goes and he summons courage to go ask Pilate. And this, this courage, I think, is twofold. One, courage that now he is declaring before the Sanhedrin, by doing this, I am a follower of Jesus. He is showing that he actually believes this man and that he is going to take care of him and he's going to bury him. This is actually something that his disciples should have done. And here we have him and, in, and we also see that Nicodemus was there and they bury him. Two that up to this point we didn't know were followers. Up to this point they really haven't shown it. They were doing it in secret. They took the time to take Jesus' body, to bury it. We also can assume that Joseph is wealthy. For one, he bought a shroud that probably would have only been bought for the wealthy. And he had his own tomb that would have been where he and his family would be buried. And this tomb was something that he would have wanted for his family. But here he gave it up for Christ. He gave up the, the, really the hope of where his family could come to mourn for the Lord. 
And it's interesting because they do take some time to bury Jesus. This isn't just a quick throw him in the tomb. They wrap him in linen. But they do not go through all of the burial rites because Passover is near. And because they don't go through with all the burial rites, that actually is what sets us up for Sunday and the resurrection. Because if they had finished all of those rites, there was no need for the women to ever go to the tomb. But because of the time of day, there was enough to get the, the burial rites started, but not enough time to finish. So we look at these prophecies and we look at what Christ has done. We have to ask the question, where do we stand? When we're standing before the cross, are we strong like these women or have we fled like his disciples? Are we like the centurion who looks up and declares, truly this man was the son of God? Or are we like the priests, hiding? Are we like the Roman soldiers, mocking and spitting on Christ? Are we like the crowd, shouting crucify him? We often think of these things as the loud rejecting Christ. But see, our sin is exposed by the cross. Because that's what put him there. That is what he came for. To die. He died a, lived a sinless life. And he died a sinful death. It wasn't his sin. It was our sin. So when we look at the cross, where do we stand? Do we hide behind lies we tell ourselves? Or do we allow our sin to be exposed by the cross? Do we allow our hearts to be changed? Do we allow Christ to take that burden from us? This last line leads us to the resurrection. The resurrection is where we always look at this point. We look for the glory of life everlasting with Christ. But our relationship with God was restored because of Christ's death. He was the sacrifice. And because of his blood, our sins are gone and we are washed white. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have given us greatest gift and as we are here at this Christmas time and we are celebrating the joys of the birth let us not look away from the cross you didn't your entire life you spent your entire life walking towards that point you spent three years with your disciples telling them what was going to happen what had to happen So let us stand before the cross, washed white because of your blood. And let us stand firm on that promise 
that because of the removal of our sin, because of what you've accomplished, we can be with you forever and ever in heaven. Pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came and was born to die. Amen.